Hey folks, be sure to listen to the end of this deviation to hear what we'll be discussing next week and to get a quick text on exactly how I think you should watch the next movie we talk about. I was having a hard time getting into Frank Ocean's album Blonde shortly after it came out in 2016. I'd been hooked to Ocean's previous work, but something about this new release was giving me trouble and I couldn't put my finger on it for a while. But then a friend said something which completely changed the way I approached the record, something I've thought about a lot since he said it. Every song on Blonde sounds like the closing song on another album. It clicked, and I was hooked. To me, selecting a closing track is one of the most fascinating choices a musician can make. It's the last impression they can leave with a listener, the final statement or the ultimate summation of the artist's intent. They dictate the emotional response the listener will have in the album's aftermath. Often, closing songs are off-kilter, surprising, and poignant. They might show a different side of a singer's range or create a grand symphony out of previous motifs. They might be uplifting or haunting or stripped down. Most importantly, I think, they're not simply defined by their positioning. The reason every song on Blonde sounds like the closing song on an album is because closing songs have unique qualities which we can recognize, even if they can be hard to define. So let's explore this question. What makes a closing track? And why do some songs feel like closers even if they don't come at the end of the record? Some examples might help. One of the most famous closers in the history of popular music is the medley of songs that close out The Beatles' Abbey Road. From You Never Give Me Your Money to the appropriately titled The End, the band transitions seamlessly between diverse numbers which display some of the wide range of styles from throughout the band's career. From somber piano balladry to the sardonic mean Mr. Mustard and Her Majesty, uh, then to the electric stomp of Polythene Pam, into the straight-ahead rock of She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, the band culminates everything with a suite of melancholy but hopeful pieces, which form a sort of treatise of the band's history. Golden Slumbers is romantic and wistful. Carry That Weight, with its collective vocals and massive horn section, presents the group at its most singular and its most pensive. And finally, The End, warps in two and a half minutes from raucous energy including Ringo Starr's only drum solo in the band's catalog, to its ultimate climax, the summary not only of the album but of the band's ethos heading into this, the last song the band would ever record together. Though technically Let It Be was released later, Abbey Road was recorded after. love you take is equal to the love you make. The Beatles became deeply interested in peace and spirituality by the end of their career, and no purer statement of that philosophy exists outside of this lyric. In this medley, we find many of the features that define closing tracks in popular music to this day. Dynamic surprises, from quiet to loud and back, lush orchestration, reprisals of past motifs, and an unambiguous note of finality, here represented by the final chord held by the entire band which cuts off into several seconds of silence. 
in its total runtime, the medley is longer than any other song the band had ever released. These sorts of long compositions are often saved for the ends of albums to allow the artist to flex their songwriting prowess, with the assumption that the listener has already committed to the album that they've produced thus far, and will stick with them while they indulge in something a bit more ambitious. A similar, more recent example can be found at the end of Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, which I contend is one of the greatest albums of all time, but more on that in another episode. On the song Mortal Man, Lamar engages in some largesse, not only in instrumentation, but also in theme. Here he talks broadly about his status within the larger culture, positioning himself as a sort of a prophet for a new generation. The opening auto-tuned vocal medley reprises a similar moment in the chorus of the song How Much a Dollar Cost, itself a parable about meeting and inadvertently shunning God. So here we have reprised musical and lyrical motifs. Under the beat, a swirling synth warps and twists, punctuated with lilting piano and horns and the clear jazzy tone of Thundercat's bass. The piece builds and builds until at last it fades out over a now-completed poem which has carried the listener repeatedly throughout the preceding album. I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same. He ends with one of the most self-indulgent moments in the history of hip-hop. A wide-ranging, imagined interview with Lamar's late hero, Tupac Shakur. What you mean by that? What the ground represent? The ground is going to open up and swallow the evil. Right. That's how I see it. My world is born. Now, to be clear, I don't mean self-indulgent in a negative way. On the contrary, often we criticize artists who devote their energies to moments which are more for themselves than for their audience. But these moments are often clear expressions of the author's intent, exploration, and beliefs. What could have been an internal monologue is presented instead as a conversation, a discussion of ideals, which doesn't just summarize but also advances Lamar's perspective of the world. The audience gets to see the birth of ideas which play out across the record, both personal and political, and the ending, as Lamar calls out in desperation to Tupac, who is of course long since dead, punctuates Lamar's continued search for answers in a world that continues to combat, oppress, and disappoint him. A very different sort of closing track appears on Radiohead's OK Computer, the album that solidified the band's legendary status and arguably changed the course of rock music for years to follow. That album's closer, The Tourist, isn't a broad summary of intent, or an experimental symphony, or a reprisal of previous ideas. Instead, it represents an unexpected tonal shift. From an album full of tight instrumentation and moody lyricism, Radiohead chooses to end their opus with a lethargic and oddly comical story of a hyperactive and disturbing stranger. The song's chorus is almost confrontationally silly. Hey man, slow down. Idiot, slow down. While the lyrics are bizarre and the primary instrumental melody is a plodding guitar-driven march, the song snowballs and transforms as it hurtles towards its conclusion. Synthesized orchestration creates a bed for Tom York's increasingly desperate vocal pleading. And while it makes sense sonically with the rest of the songs on the record, the tourist distinguishes itself with open chord structures, cacophonous production, and rhythmic simplicity. It is somehow both straightforward and lush in equal measure. Distinguishing characteristics like these are what define a closing track compared to just any other song on a record. 
musicians tend to finish off an album with something that is unusual in some way. You can usually tell what the last song is once it starts playing, even without looking at the track listing, because it will stand out from what preceded it. Now this sometimes can lead to problems with consistency, when a solid closer is placed too early. For example, I was recently re-listening to Feist's 2007 album The Reminder, and was surprised when I heard track 10, Brandy Alexander, and the album kept going after it was over. Brandy Alexander has many of the hallmarks of a traditional album closer. It opens in a stripped-down fashion with a simple rhythm of a kick drum and some light finger snapping underneath Leslie Feist's echoing vocals. Then it adds layers, one instrument at a time, first with a simple three-chord piano measure, then with a light bass riff, then with some more varied piano runs and synths, backup singers, and then a grand section which orchestrates everything together before ending on an empty soundscape with only Feist's voice alone against the silent backdrop. Most distinctive of all is its immediately digestible chorus, something which could easily fit into a nursery rhyme. He's my friend Alexander, always gets me into trouble. But that's another matter. Brandy Alexander. The melody and the rhyme scheme are basic, easy to remember and sing along with. This pared down quality makes it stand out musically from the rest of the album, while still highlighting the musical elements that make it distinctly a feist song, specifically the singer's warm vocals, upbeat instrumentation, and a theme of love and introspection. It makes for a natural final chapter. But the three tracks which follow it are much more in line with the sound of the rest of the album. Brandy Alexander sticks out in a way that could have made for a playful and touching ending, but instead it serves as an outlier in the middle of other dissimilar pieces, and what follows it feels anticlimactic by comparison. Misplacing a closing track can lead to a feeling of exhaustion in the listener, as they've been prepared to bid a fond farewell to the album they've been listening to only to have to stick around for longer than expected. Imagine giving a speech, reaching a crescendo which gets a crowd standing on their feet, and then spending five more minutes repeating things you said earlier in the speech. The feeling of propulsion, of rising action and climax is broken, and the impression on the audience is less memorable or impactful. None of this is to say that closing tracks are inherently better than other songs. They might not even stand on their own very well. It's rare for a closing track to be a hit single, and sometimes artists will use the closer like a joke, like the horrifying screams at the end of My Morning Jacket's evil urges, or the grotesque double-fucked-by-two-black-studs that closes out King Missile's admittedly comedic they. Which brings me back to Frank Ocean and the album Blonde. The record is more sparse than any of Ocean's previous productions, a number of the songs don't even include a beat, but simply some long-held keyboard chords under Ocean's searching vocals. Solo has a complex time signature and doesn't include anything resembling a drum beat. Rather, the sounds of the keys pressing down serves the rhythmic function which underlines the song. Nights includes a beat, but it also has a complex transition at its midpoint which transforms the song into a completely different, more rap-focused piece. Each track feels simultaneously intimate and distant, as though Ocean is performing directly to you and you alone, but he remains aloof, lost in his own thoughts. 
but each track stands distinctly from what comes immediately before and immediately after. The lyrics often come out in an arrhythmic stream of consciousness and are carried by the instrumentation itself mostly minimalistic. No individual track on Blonde stands out as an obvious single, but each song has a probing, haunted quality, indicative of the sort of self-indulgence we discussed earlier. In this way, each song is a thesis statement of one kind or another. And that's something the best closing tracks have in common. They leave the listener to consider and digest what they've heard. They leave nothing behind, all cards on the table. And so how did Frank Ocean choose to close out Blonde? With the song Futura Free. At 9 minutes and 24 seconds, it's by far the longest track on the album. Its lyrics are more like a monologue than a song, an almost rambling collection of seemingly disjointed thoughts which are connected not by a hook, but rather by a subtle river of synths which flow beneath the surface. I don't know. If I was being honest, I say long as I can fuck three times a day and not skip a meal, I'm good. I used to work on my feet for seven dollars an hour, call my mama like mama. I am making minimum wage, mama. I'm on mama. The chord structures of those synths have minimal variation and tend to stretch out for a long time before evolving into the next tone. Halfway through, the track settles with a long silence, followed by an experimental mix of field recordings and interviews looped and spliced and played over a calming keyboard melody which winds down like a warped and discarded tape. Make sure you speak up. What's your name? What do you do? It's telling a story, or maybe it's painting a portrait, or maybe it's memorializing someone. No matter the intent, the sequence does make a statement, something unique from the prevailing motifs of the record, and yet informing and coloring the listener's feelings about those previous pieces. It recontextualizes what came before and gives a new meaning to the second listen. Closing tracks are a lot like the ends of essays and stories in this way. It's the final engraving on the headstone commemorating the life of the record. It's an epitaph. And the audience walks away from it with a different feeling than when they came in. That feeling can be as clear as day or as murky as mud, but whatever its tone, it echoes in the ether long after silence has reclaimed the sound. Thank you for listening to this little deviation and indulging me in my rambling thoughts about closing tracks on albums. If you have any thoughts on uh, what makes a closing track distinct or what your favorite closing tracks are, or if you think I screwed something up, or if maybe you think there's something better after Brandy Alexander on Feist, the reminder, I don't really see how, but feel free to reach out to us uh, on Twitter. We're at text deviants. Uh, you can send us an email at contextual at gmail.com. Uh, check us out on Facebook and, uh, you know, if you have a chance, uh, give us a, give us a, a rating, uh, review us a bit, subscribe on iTunes, Apple podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, you know, the more, uh, feedback we get, the better the show's going to be and the more people are going to end up liking it. So, uh, whatever you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. We don't really have any money, so this is just mostly for fun for you and for us. In the meantime, I'm sure you're wondering what we're going to be watching next week. And the film we will be discussing is none other 
than The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. That's right, the first in the classic Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, We will be discussing that uh, over the course of randomly generated critical context, but in keeping with our pledge to do something a little bit new, uh, I'd like to offer what we are going to be calling Quick Texts. And a quick text for the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, that I think will make uh, your experience watching it a little bit more interesting, is scope. I think it's important when watching the Lord of the Rings, and especially the first one, to take a second to admire or at least appreciate uh, the variance in the size and scope of the film's story. You know, it it opens on this sort of like larger uh, global narrative and, you know, narrows its focus down to these sort of few characters. And then it it transitions pretty regularly between broad ideas and then intimate moments. And and I think that interplay uh, and when they choose to make those transitions and what defines the sort of bigger ideas from the smaller stories... I think give it a watch for those things and see if you might notice something different than if you've seen it before or if this is your first time maybe see if that uh colors your feelings about the movie uh in the meantime uh i've been your host christian hagan we'll be back next week with the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and i hope you have a nice day Thank you for listening to Contextual Deviance. You can find more information about us online at our website, contextualdeviance.wordpress.com. You can tweet at us at textdeviance. You can email us at contextualdeviance at gmail.com. Thanks to Minneapolis's own The Badman for the use of their song Gun Tonic off the album Ain't Clean. This has been Contextual Deviance. My name is Christian Hagen, and have a nice day. Have a nice day! <laughs>